This Tuesday, December 22nd, is winter solstice, the longest night of the year. On solstice here in the mid-Atlantic, we'll have more than 14 hours of darkness and only 9 hours, 26 minutes of daylight. And although I'll confess that I love those long, hot summer days when we have close to 15 hours of daylight, John, I can see shaking his head, he loves the winter, I am coming to see the long nights of winter as an expanded opportunity to appreciate and experience the importance of darkness and of night. Can you remember as a child looking up at a starry sky and the grandeur and feeling how small we humans are in the grand scheme of things? Looking up into the night sky with the power of modern science, we know that, the most, uh, that most current estimates guess that there are somewhere between 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe, each of which has hundreds of billions of stars. A recent German supercomputer simulation put that number even higher. It may be as high as 500 billion galaxies in the universe. In other words, there could be a galaxy out there for every star in the Milky Way. A galaxy out there for every star in the Milky Way. The universe is vast beyond our full comprehension. I grew up in a small town in the Midlands of South Carolina where we could see a fair amount of stars in the night sky. And when I would go camping in North Carolina, I could see many more stars. But my wife and I now live in downtown Frederick, which we love for many, many reasons. But one of the few downsides is that you can hardly see any stars in the night sky in downtown Frederick. The world was transformed starting in the late 19th century with the beginning of commercially viable electric lights and electric utilities. I suspect many of you have seen those NASA photos that are taken from space that show the places on Earth that are lit up at night, brightly lit up with electric lights. Even more remarkable is comparing those photos over time. If you look at a nighttime satellite photo of North America from the late 1950s, your eye is drawn first to this solid stream of light that runs from around D.C. up to New York City. There's also a large patch of light in the northwest, that's in the Midwest, centered around Chicago, and there are small swatches of light throughout the South which become just flecks of light as you move west, with the exception of perhaps like the Bay Area. But east of the Mississippi in the late 1950s, there remained huge areas of dark at night in this country. But by the mid-1970s, the entire eastern half of the United States, beyond the Mississippi, in the entire eastern half of the U.S., is almost completely bright at night when a photo is taken from space. The western half, though, remains comparatively dark, but compared to the photo of the west from 15 years earlier, those islands of light that were flecks in the west, they are slowly growing. 
Uh, Fast forward to the end of the 20th century, and the eastern half of the U.S. is even more solidly and brightly lit. In the west, there are quite a few large patches of light around big cities, and those islands of light in the west that used to be just flecks, they are increasingly bright and increasingly close together, such that it becomes difficult in the west by the late 20th century to see any significant areas of dark in the western half of this country. By 2025, a mere decade from now, it is estimated that from space, one will see almost the entire continental United States illuminated at night, with the exception of a few small pools of darkness in the West. The upshot is that already two-thirds of Americans and Europeans no longer experience real night, and nearly all of us live in areas considered polluted by light. To quantify that claim, there's a nine-level unit of measurement called the Bortle Scale for describing the relative differences between the brightness of the night sky in different areas due to light pollution. So when scientists tell us that two-thirds of Americans and Europeans no longer experience real night, what they mean is that if most of us go outside here in Frederick and look up in the night sky, we see a Class 9 sky, an inner-city sky, or maybe a Class 7 suburban urban transition transition sky, or at most maybe a class five suburban sky, but that only gets you halfway down the scale to real dark. Because of the changes in our landscape, which have become increasingly electronically lit since the late 19th century, most Americans and Europeans, especially the youngest among us, have rarely or never experienced a night dark enough to register a three, a rural sky where only some indication of light pollution can be seen on the horizon, or a two, a truly dark sight. As for Bortles Class 1, which he describes as a sky so dark that the Milky Way casts casts obvious diffuse shadows on the ground. Many question if that such darkness even still exists in the lower 48 states. A level of darkness that for most of human history was common, but for the modern Western world has become unreal. Consider that from the observatory of the Empire State Building, we now see 1% of the stars that a 700s era Manhattanite would have seen. 1%. As our UU forebear Henry David Thoreau wrote in his journal in 1856, is it not a maimed and imperfect nature that I am conversant with? Primitive nature is what most interests me. I take infinite pains to know all the phenomena of spring, thinking that I have here the entire poem. And then to my chagrin, I learn that it is but an imperfect copy that I possess and have read, that my ancestors have torn out many of the first leaves and the grandest passages and mutilated it in many places." I should not like to think that some demigod has come before me and picked out some of the best stars. I wish to know an entire heaven and an entire earth. The book that raised my awareness, particularly around the masking of stars in our night sky, is Paul Begard's The End of Night, Searching for Natural Darkness in an Age of Artificial Light. Now, sometimes I share with you insights that I've found from books, and I'm like, You may not actually want to read this book. It's pretty terrible, but it has some good things to say. Bogard's book is excellent. It's accessible. It's 
fascinating and goes, um, and goes into way more detail than I can share here. It's structured around the Bortle scale. So he starts, the chapters go 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So he starts with you know, exploring Paris and New York and Las Vegas and the stars there. And then he goes down the Bortle scale. And it's, it's really a, quite a fascinating, well-done book. I'll say, though, that there are, of course, many wonderful advantages that have come with electric light, the ability to work and play at night, as well as expanded safety and security. But as John spoke some about, we've taken all of that way too far. Um, Bugard's book made me consider the consequences of light robbing us of the fullness of the night sky. He introduced me to terms such as light trespass, which he means unregulated, unshielded lights creating unnecessary glare. This is particularly problematic for seniors in our society who have um, aged eyes, who the glare particularly bothers. And it's, that's cut a lot more and would be a lot safer if we had shielded lights that were directed. So we'd have uh, safer driving, safer for pedestrians, a lot less wasted energy if light is actually directed where it's supposed to go. So in an age of climate change, save energy. And the, a lot of lights would then not shine into the sky dimming the view of the stars. So as much as I love downtown Frederick, when I walk around downtown Frederick at night, my attention is rarely drawn to the sky except maybe to the moon. If I do look up, there are very few stars visible except even on a clear night. Now there is a tipping point that people that do uh, night sky events and take people around, they've noticed that to really have a breathtakingly beautiful night sky, such as John referred to this classmate raised in New York City in upstate New York for the first time, being startled by the night sky, to experience that, you need to see around 450 stars uh, to get that feeling of infinitude and being swept up. And asking for 450 stars is not unreasonable. If, if, the sky, if we turned out all the lights in Frederick and had clear skies, you should be seeing 2,700 stars in the night sky. That's what our ancestors saw when they looked up, 2,700 stars. That's the confusing array of stars where you can't even find the Big Dipper. When the North American power grid faltered in August 2004, over 10 million people took to the streets. Some of you may remember that. It happened in the Northeast, so around that area that since the 1950s was that swath of light from D.C. to New York. But they took to the streets, it turns out, not to loot or protest, but to gaze astonished at the night sky. For a few summer evenings, a postmodern population knew real, quiet, and true darkness. Reporters in Canada and the United States seeking tales of horror and hardship heard instead about the glories of the firmament, which many had never seen. There's even a technical term for this effect. When the horizon disappears and you feel like you're falling into the stars, it's called celestial vaulting. The last time I remember really viscerally being taken and grabbed by celestial vaulting was about a decade ago. I was on a five-day backpacking trip to the Bridger Wilderness in Wyoming. We had hiked two days in, and then we had gone to the top of a mountain, and it turned out we spent the night there. We hadn't planned to, but we had come to the, the north face of the mountain was on the other side, and we got to the top and looked over the mountain, and it was complete snow. So this is why you talk to the ranger and check in at the station before hiking two days in the wilderness. That's another sermon and life lesson. But we, uh, the, the upshot is that I, on the top of that mountain in the Bridger Wilderness of Wyoming, I got up in the middle of the night and just happened to look up. 
and I almost fell over because it was so arrestingly resplendent to see the sheer numbers and glory of the night sky. Ralph Waldo Emerson, another of our UU forebears, wrote in, our, in his 1836 essay, Nature, um, saying, you know, what would it be like if we had never seen the stars before? Or if the stars, like some comet, were an event that once every thousand years or once every lifetime suddenly came? He said, if that were the case, if the stars should appear one night every thousand years, how would we believe and adore? But every night they come out, these envoys of beauty and light the universe with their admonishing smile. Tragically, though, from most of our perspectives, the stars no longer come out every night, and far too many of us have forgotten that most nights we should be seeing not dozens of stars, but thousands. There are still a few places in or near the U.S. where you can experience a dark night sky near the lower end of the Bortle Scale. You can go to the Black Rock Desert of uh, Nevada. That, some of you may know that's where the annual Burning Man Festival is, so you may or may not want to go during the Burning Man Festival. It depends on what you're into. But you can go there anytime other than the Burning Man Festival. Um, Mont Megantic National Park in southern Quebec, which has been designated a dark sky reserve by the International Dark Sky Association. Death Valley National Park, which is partially in both California and Nevada. Natural Bridges National Monument, Capitol Reef National Park, Bryce Canyon National Park, all of those are in southern Utah. Uh, Closer to home, Cherry Springs State Park in Pennsylvania. That's about a little over four hours from here. It's one of the best places in the eastern U.S. for stargazing. It's been designated a gold star site by the International Dark Sky Association. Other dark sky national parks include Big Bend, Bryce Canyon, uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, Chaco Canyon Cultural uh, his National Historical Park. Significantly, the, natural, the National Park Service, now this wasn't the case until about 15 years ago, it really came way too late, but the National Park Service now includes darkness as one of the resources it is sworn to protect. We too can accept that challenge to reclaim and protect our local view of the stars and the importance of being able to be swept up and appreciate our place in the cosmic scheme of things. A famous negative example is Las Vegas. So Las Vegas has twice the amount of light pollution that would be the average of the case for its population size. In contrast, through dark sky ordinances, laws regulating the use of artificial light, uh, places like Flagstaff, Arizona, have actually achieved 25% lower light pollution than would usually be the case for uh, a population their size. And it's been recognized as the world's first dark sky community, again, by the International Dark Sky Association. The IDA's program requires that a community inventory its existing lights, change those lights that are causing existing glare uh, and sky glow, and promise that any new lights would conform to anti-light pollution standards. For a quick gauge of sky quality next time you're outside at night, look up and see if you can locate the Little Dipper. If you can see all four stars in the cup of the Little Dipper, you have basically good dark skies. If you can only see two stars at the front of the cup, your skies are fair to poor. In most American and European cities, you can't see the Little Dipper at all. 
If we were to get serious about dark sky ordinances, then cities might be able to shift from seeing around a dozen or two dozen stars to seeing three or four dozen stars. The more significant shift, though, would be about 30 miles away from major cities. If we were to get serious as a country about dark sky ordinances, all of a sudden 30 miles from cities, you would actually be able to see the night sky again in a quality, breathtaking, celestial, vaulting way. A motivation for cities who could say, what's in it for us? Well, part of what's in it is allowing your citizens to be able to drive 30 minutes instead of four hours or more to see dark skies. An additional benefit is saving money in cities. It is estimated that the European Union spends some 1.7 billion euros a year on wasted outdoor light that could be saved if they used shielded lighting and targeted lighting. In the U.S., that figure is similar. We waste about $2.2 billion on wasted light at night. Closest to home, I would love to see the downtown Frederick Historical Society, which in my personal view has overly fetishized sometimes the architecture and the construction materials that were available at Frederick's founding. I would love to see them take a passion for preserving what the night sky looked like at Frederick's founding and for us to be able to experience that. You can reflect on what um, progress toward reclaiming starry skies might look like in your local community. And for steps on creating change, uh, just Google the International Dark Sky Association or go to darkskies.org. If I had more time, I would summarize the highlights of what I've said in previous sermons about this time of year on a winter solstice spirituality, a spirituality of winter. I'll certainly link to those sermons in the manuscript of this sermon on our website. But suffice it to say that the world we are creating for ourselves that is increasingly lit by electric lights and by electric screens 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, it distances us. Those choices we're making of how we shape the lights at night in our society is distancing us from the rhythms of nature daily and seasonally. An overabundance of light inhibits us from fully entering into the seasons of our lives, lives in which we are called to practice what could be called a winter spirituality, practices of inwardness, simplicity, subtraction, darkness, silence, and letting go. May we increasingly relearn and reclaim the beauty and the wonder of the night sky that our ancestors knew. In that spirit, I will end for now with Wendell Berry's poem, To Know the Dark. Berry writes, To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark, go without sight, and find that dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings.